grab a Bible, turn to Genesis 37. Genesis chapter 37. And uh, we're kicking off a series that I'm um, calling When Life Doesn't Make Sense. We're going to be looking at the life of Joseph uh, throughout the next uh, couple of months. Now, I, I really think that uh, the story of Joseph is, is the most extraordinary story in the entire Old Testament. Uh, if you like a rags to riches kind of story, if you like a story, for, you know, going from the pit to the palace to prime minister, because that's what happens to Joseph, you're going to love, you're going to love this story. Uh, I, I've often shared with you as we've, as we've looked at scripture together, I've often shared with you and just kind of highlighted for you that the writers of scripture pull no punches uh, when it comes to describing the character flaws of the heroes of the faith. Bible characters, you know, people like Moses, people like uh, Abraham, uh, certainly David, certainly Esther. Um, I mean, you name it, the Bible is brutally honest about character flaws, about their sins, and about their weaknesses. And I think there's a couple of things going on with that. I, I think the first thing that we see uh, with that is that I think a lot of times we think that we need to be emulating those characters. We need to be imitating them. We need to be like Jonah. We need to be like David. And that's not really the point of scripture. I think the point of scripture is to show the desperate need of these Bible characters for grace. And that connects with you and me because we need God's grace, do we not? Can I get an amen to that? All right, so that's what you see in it. You see, they need grace just like we do. And, um, and so that's, that's why it's so brutally honest. Now, all of that to say this, if there's an exception to the rule, it might be Joseph. Because I'm just here to tell you, church, Joseph is pretty squeaky clean. I mean, it's, 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 he, he really does stand out uh, from all the other characters in Scripture. It doesn't mean he's perfect. He's certainly not perfect, as we're going to look at today. Um, he has pride. He has some arrogance about him. Uh, certainly some insensitivity and, and all of this we see at age 17 uh, in his life. But really beyond that, uh, you're going to be hard pressed uh, to find anything really wrong uh, with him. There's, there's no hint of scandal. There's no hint of compromise in his life. And, and what, what we really see, and this is just implied, but through the twists and the turns, the incredible downturns that he walked through, that he handled them with faith and he handled them with character. And that's what we see. Uh, that's just the end product of what we see. So, so I think there's a lesson in it for all of us uh, along those lines. Now, let me just mention this to you as well. This is why you can't miss a single week in the series because this is, this is why we're studying Joseph. When you, when you dig into his life and you understand his story, you understand your story a whole lot better. Think about this. God in his grace preserved this incredible story of Joseph and, and gave us a window into his life to see how God works. And when we see and recognize God working in the story of Joseph, then we're better able to see and understand how God works in the twists and the turns and especially the downturns of our life. Does that make sense? And so the end result is your faith grows stronger and your joy goes, you know, grows greater because now you see God is in this. God is working. And I think that's, that's really what we're going to learn uh, from the life of Joseph. Now, uh, today we're going to read uh, the story about when his brothers betrayed him. 
and then threw him into a pit and basically abandoned him uh, to die. But then, then later kind of changed their mind and they just sold him into slavery. So we see him today in the pit of family betrayal. Now, um, isn't it true? Sometimes life can be the pits. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah, yeah, there's no doubt about it. And that's true whether you follow God or not. Whether you follow Jesus and obey him and trust him, sometimes life can be the pits. Or if you don't follow him. And there are a lot of preachers on TV making millions of dollars, propagating a, a message of prosperity, a prosperity message gospel that basically says if you follow Jesus, that he'll make you healthy and wealthy and comfortable and give you an easy life. And I'm just telling you, church, it's a false gospel. It is nowhere in scripture. Now you can pull verses out of context and you can make them say anything you wanna say. But when you give a serious reading to scripture and as what we're gonna see in the life of Joseph, that is not the case at all. They're just, they're just pits in life. And that's, that's what we're gonna, we're gonna be looking at today. And it, and it could be, Today, you find your life in a pit. And it could be the pit of anything. It could be financial ruin. It could be the pit of a job that you really don't like. It could be the pit of a, of a cancer diagnosis. It could be the pit of you know, a marriage separation or going through a divorce. It could be the pit of battling addiction. Uh, it could be the pit of raising prodigal children or being, you know, having prodigal children. It could be any one of those pits. And what's the one question we ask when we find ourselves in a pit? God, where are you? Why me? Why, why aren't you going to get me out of this? You know, that, those, are, those are the questions we ask. And if you're not asking those questions, then you're coming to your own conclusions. You know, you're, you're coming to the conclusion of, man, he must be really mad at me. I must have sinned and really messed up because, because now I'm in this pit. You ever ask that? Or it could be that you're thinking, wow, if God is in control of the universe, he must be absolutely incompetent because my life is a mess. You ever thought about that? You know, in 1981, there was a, a book that took the nation by storm. It was written by uh, a rabbi, Rabbi Harold Kushner. And he, he, wrote, this, he wrote this book titled, when, when Bad Things Happen to Good People. And it really just spread all over the United States. And... Um, in the book, he talks about his own personal tragedies and in his own life, the pain that, that he experienced just through uh, adversities and, and, and struggles in his life. And he really just kind of came to a, a conclusion that, that either, that, either is, that, that God is all powerful and he's not all good or he's all good, but he's not all powerful. And I haven't read the book. I've read some, you know, just some brief reviews on it. I think he comes to the conclusion that God is all good, but he's not all powerful. Therefore, he can't prevent certain things from happening in your life and my life that are painful and difficult and hard. And I think the question that we have to ask is, is that really true? Is that really, is that, is that really true? Is that, is that the testimony that we get from scripture? And I wanna tell you, it's not. I want to tell you from, from the life of Joseph, and this is what I'm hoping that we gain from this series, and, and really just from reading scripture, what we see is what is called the doctrine of the providence of God. And the providence of God basically says, 
basically says this, that God is sovereign, he is all powerful, and he is all good. He is both of those things at the same time. That's the providence of God. And church, what happens is as we begin to understand what the providence of God really is, as we kind of lean in on that, we, we begin to see that our entire life is under the care, the total care and concern of God. And that our entire life is under his control. And he's got it. And it brings great comfort. It brings great joy. And it brings great faith when you begin to realize and understand what the providence of God is all about. In fact, I want to just share with you two definitions uh, of, of God's providence. And this uh, first one is from a man named Jerry Bridges who's written a book called Trusting God. Trusting God is so good, I read it once a year. That's how good that book is. And so this is what Jerry Bridges says. He says, God's providence is his constant care for, and his absolute rule over all of his creation for his own glory and the good of his own people. That's a really good definition. Matt Chandler defines the providence of God in one of his sermons. He says this, he says, uh, providence is the power, the presence, and the wisdom of God working itself out in the details of our lives to reveal his deep love and affection for us. See, here's the really good news about the providence of God. The providence of God basically says what scripture teaches is as Christians, as children of God, as sons and daughters of God, we are, we are not held in the grip of blind forces. We're not held in the grip of blind forces like fate, fortune, chance, luck, or determinism. That for the child of God, those things don't even exist. Basically what the providence of God says is it says that we're under his constant care and his constant concern and we're under his constant control and he loves us. And so, and so that's what we see in the, in the life of Joseph, specifically what you're going to read as you kind of, as you get into this story, you're going to see cruelty, you're going to see evil and you're going to see sin. And what the providence of God says is God is not the author of cruelty and evil and sin. He's not. But what he does is he takes cruelty and evil and sin and he uses it. He, he overrules it. He, he overturns it. And then he redeems it for good in your life and in mine so that his purposes are accomplished. Now, here's the mysterious part of the providence of God. I wish I could explain this to you better. I can't, even if, even if I knew how to do it. You know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. Here, but here's the mystery of the providence of God. The providence of God acknowledges that as human beings, as men and women, we make choices. And we're responsible for those choices. But that God's purposes still prevail, even with those choices. So there's this mystery in that, that God's plan will always prevail. But as men and women, as students, we make choices and, and we're responsible for those choices. And somehow God works and weaves all of that, his glory and his purposes and his good for his children, for you and for me. Does that make sense? And so that is, that is absolutely uh, the, the providence of God that we're, we're going to see over the next few days. Now, um, in a moment, we're going to read selections from chapter 37. And let me just kind of set it up for you this way. Uh, this, this family that we're reading about is a soap opera, and we're coming right in the middle of it. This would, this would be, 
if somebody would make this a Netflix series, it would go viral. I'm just telling you, it would go crazy because this, this family is so, um, is so amazing and, and uh, so incredible and dysfunctional. So I'm just going to kind of set it up that way and uh, we'll, we'll jump in and go from there. So what we're going to do today, it's a, long, it's a longer passage of scripture, uh, but it's worthy of our attention. So I'm going to invite you, if you're willing and able, would you stand together for the reading of the word of God today? So we're going to begin at verse 2. We're going to read down to verse 11. These are the generations of Jacob, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to him, hear this dream that I have. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But even when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now skip down to verse 23. So Jacob and, um, or Joseph and his brothers are out in the field. They're caring for a flock. Verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother of our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew up Joseph, lifted him up out of the pit, sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and he saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And then they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to, the, to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it's your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Jacob is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, 
put sackcloth on his, his loins, mourned for his son many days. And this is God's word for God's people. You may be seated. So with brothers like that, who needs enemies, right? Certainly. What we see is Joseph is in this, in this pit of family betrayal. And I think, I, I think there, there's some perspective that we need when we're in the pit. Whatever pit you find yourself in, we need a certain perspective. We need to understand it. We need to see through it from a, from a, from a godly lens. And so what I want to do is just share with you three perspectives for the pits of life, whichever pit you're in today. The first perspective I just want to highlight for you, it's this. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. I think when you're looking at this story and you see just how they're interacting with each other, when you see what... You know, Jacob, what he does, and the brothers, what he does, and Joseph. There's, there's sin in this story. And I think oftentimes as Christians, we really don't realize this, but sin takes you farther than you want to go. I, there's a steeper price for sin than we even realize. And I think that's what we're going to see in this story. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. Jacob's family... Jacob is the father. His family is large and it's prosperous and it's dysfunctional, just like every single one of our families, right? And so, and so yeah, this is your Facebook family. They look really good in the Facebook post. Everything's really good on the outside, but on the inside, there are foundation, there, there are cracks in the foundation for sure. And that's, that's just true of all of us. And so what's the source of the dysfunction? Well, it's sin, just sin, selfishness. And it's not the sin of just one person. It's not the brokenness of just one person. It's, it's Jacob's sin, it's Joseph's sin, and it's the brother's sin. And it, and it comes together in a perfect storm, causing a whole lot of destruction. And that's what we see in this. Let me just show you, let me give you a flavor for it. Look, go back and look at verse two with me and we'll, we'll kind of get our bearings with this chapter a little bit. So, so the writer of Genesis says this, Joseph being 17, so this is, this is our first glimpse into his life. He's 17 years old. He was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons, um, with, with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah and his, father, his father's wives. So Joseph brought, notice what it says, a bad report of them to their father. He brought a bad report. Now I will tell you the commentators are split over what bad report means because in Hebrew it can mean false report. Or it can just mean a bad report. So Joseph could be lying, making stuff up, or he could just be a tattletale at 17. You, I'll let you make the choice. Now, my theory is I don't think his brothers are very high character kind of guys. I don't think he needed to make anything up about them. I think every day there was something else to tell his father about. So I think I think, he's, I think Joseph's just is a little bit of a tattletale. And I think the real issue is Joseph's relationship with his father, Jacob. I think the brothers are jealous of it, which is what we're going to see. And, and I think they just have a close relationship and he's telling on them. All right. So that kind of, that's, that's an undercurrent definitely flowing in this story. All right. But look at the, but look at the next, next verse. And now we begin to see Jacob's sin manifest itself a little bit. Now Israel, which is another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. Now, what is that? 
that's called favoritism. And you, we would like to think that here in 2019, as parents in the United States, we've, we've, we've got so much education and technology, we've progressed. We've progressed past favoritism, right, in our parenting. We would like to think that. Don't you believe it? It still happens even today. And so what you see is when mom and dad favors one child over the other, it causes, it plants seeds of destruction in the family, in relationships that you'll be reaping the rest of your life. So parents, I would just say, do not do that. It's just a warning, all right? So what's going on with Jacob here? I think that this goes back to Jacob's childhood. So Jacob is favoring Joseph. And I think you have to ask the question, why? I think it goes back to Jacob when he was a child in his relationship with his dad. I think Jacob wanted more than anything, the love and the affection and the attention and the affirmation of his dad. And I don't think he got it. And I think he was starved for it. Do you remember who Jacob's dad was? It was Isaac. And so who did Isaac favor over Jacob? Esau. And I think Jacob grew up with that. And I think it formed him and I think it impacted him negatively. And I think that's why, that's why Jacob is the way he is in so many instances. If you read his story, you know exactly what, if you've read it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So there's definitely some favoritism here. And I think, I think if you know, if you understand a little bit about the fact that Jacob married Rachel, you guys remember that story? So Jacob married Rachel. Um, but before he married Rachel, he was tricked into marrying Leah. I told you all this, was, this is a soap opera, uh, and it's the truth. So he went, to, he went to Rachel's dad, and he said, Laban, I want to marry your daughter. And Laban said, that'd be awesome. You just got to work for me seven years. And so, and so he did. That's how much he loved Rachel. But the problem was, and you have to go back and read this, and this is, this is just jacked up, but... Um, Laban tricks him into marrying Leah, his oldest daughter. Leah wasn't as pretty as Rachel. Leah wasn't married yet. And so you couldn't give the youngest away to, to marriage before the older one had gotten married. So he tricks Jacob into marrying Leah. And um, I think alcohol was involved in that. So, uh, um, and, then, and, then, and, then, and then Jacob goes back and he... He says to Laban, I want to marry Rachel. He loved Rachel. And Laban said, well, you're gonna have to work for me seven more years. And he does it. So Jacob is married to Leah and Rachel. Leah gives Jacob 10 sons. Rachel gives him two, gives him Joseph and Benjamin. The sad thing is Rachel dies in childbirth. So Jacob loses the love of his life. Now, all he's wanted is the love of his father, and he never got that. And I think Rachel met that void in his life, and then she dies. Well, what was left after Rachel? Joseph was. Joseph's a good-looking guy. He's really smart. He's really gifted. He's, you know, he's handsome. He's all that. And I think, I think, jo I think Joseph stepped in and filled that void in his life. And what you see happening is, is Joseph or Jacob favoring Joseph over the other boys. And how do we know that? Well, it tells us because, because Jacob gave Joseph a coat of many colors. 
Now, that may not seem like a big deal today because we've got the Greenwood Park Mall. You can buy all the Coda Milligators if you want. But back then, you guys, semi-nomads in the ancient Middle East, they only wore brown, black, and white. You can imagine how difficult it was to make a tunic that was multicolored and bright colors. So this coat was very expensive. And so, so Jacob gives it to Joseph. Now, I don't understand how Jacob could do that and think it's not going to cause a problem. Because it certainly does, as you have already seen. But he does it. And I think that's where we really begin to see we begin to see this, the impact that our sin has, that it blinds us and it always takes us farther than we wanna go. Because what's happening is the brothers hate Joseph. They won't even speak peacefully to him. And so you have this, you have this relationship that's going on between Joseph and, and Jacob. And, and really what Jacob has done is he's made Joseph an idol in his life. And I think he's finding all of his significance. He's finding all of his value. He's finding all of his identity and his self-worth in his son. And the other sons resent it. Because clearly there's this favoritism going on in his life. And it's, it's sowing seeds of destruction. And you see it even in, you see it in, in verse 4. Um, but when the, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated them. And, and they, couldn't, they couldn't speak peacefully to him. So, so you see the word hated mentioned again in verse 5. And then drop down to verse 8, you see the word hate again. Now that is strong language. It's not accidental. This is, this is boiling over. And, and Jacob is stoking it. And so here's, here's the thing I want us to see. I, I guarantee you, Jacob never thought about the implications of this. He never thought it was going to cause all of this problem. And what we see is this principle, church, that sin will take you farther than you want to go. It almost gets his son killed. That's his, that, is jo, that is Jacob's idolatry right there, almost killing his son. And so, and so the brothers are all mad. They're stoked. They're plotting to get, you know, to kill their brother. And, and there are devastating consequences even for them. And you don't see it in the passage. We're going to see it later on in a few weeks. I think when we get to chapter 44, you're, you're going to really begin to see that the brothers for over 20 years are carrying guilt and shame that has never been dealt with over what they did to Joseph. They carry it with them for 20 plus years. They're bound by it. They're haunted by it. They're weighed down by it. Even to the point where when something bad happens to the brothers, their first thought is God's punishing us for what we did to Joseph 20 years ago. Now, when they made the decision to do all this, they didn't think long-term. They didn't think about that. They didn't think how guilt and shame and sin haunts them and drags them down. We don't think about it. A lot of times when we, when we sin, we just kind of think, well, it doesn't impact anybody else. It just impacts me. And that's just a little bit. Don't you believe it? Church, every time we sin, it takes us farther than we want to go every single time. And so what is it? It's just when we choose short-term pleasure or gain and we're not even considering long-term. And so sin will always take you farther than you want to go. Now, here's your question, because I know you're asking it. 
What does this have to do with being in the pit? Well, it has everything to do with being in a pit, whatever pit you're in. Because what does the enemy tell you when you're in the pit? You can't trust God. He's not good. He's not working. He doesn't care about you. He's ignoring you. He's forgotten you. And you don't need to follow him. And you don't need to trust him. And you certainly don't need to obey him. And the enemy pours it on. And you got to make a decision. In the middle of the pit that I'm in right now, am I going to trust God or not? That's the question. And so what we see is God wants to strengthen our faith. He wants to grow our faith. And our faith grows stronger when we pull back a little bit, kind of assess the situation and say, you know what? The enemy is telling me to run far away from God. What I need to be doing right now is running to him like crazy. And the way that you can run to him when you're in the pit is by simply asking the question, God, what do you want to teach me here? What do you want to accomplish in me here? How can you be glorified in my life while I'm in the pit? How can you be raised up and glorified? How, can, how, how do you want to grow me and transform me? Because that's ultimately what God wants to do when we're in the pit. And so that's the first thing that we see, that, um, that sin will take you farther than we ever want to go. That's the first perspective that we need. Now, but there's a second perspective that we need, and this is, even, this is even more important, all right? So here it is. Let me explain it this way. God's hiddenness is not God's absence. God's hiddenness is not God's absence. You're like, what do you mean by that? I, I think you have to ask yourself the question, when you're in the pit, what does it feel like being there? Feels like God's a million miles away, isn't it? Feels like God's abandoned you. That he's rejected you. He's ignoring you. He's forgotten you. He's on coffee break. And you're in this pit. You're in the pit of suffering and adversity. And you're like, God, where are you? I don't see you. I can't hear you. You know what's fascinating about chapter 37? God is not even mentioned one time in the entire chapter. Not one time. I mean, he doesn't speak, he doesn't appear, he doesn't send a prophet, he doesn't send a preacher. You know, he, he's not even referred to not one time. He seems far away. But you know what the good news is? That God's hiddenness is not God's absence. That God's silence is not God's indifference. Listen to this. God is working in the pit you're in right now. He is working he really is. That's why we can trust him. You're like, okay, Scott, I just don't see it. Well, let me explain it this way. We skipped the middle section. You can go back and read it a little bit later today if you want. But let me just kind of tell you what happens. And I think it illustrates that God is, God's working. The, the uh, brothers are in Shechem. They're tending the sheep. They've got a big herd of sheep and they're, they're caring for them. And they're a pretty good haul away from Jacob's house. And I think they've got something devious in mind. They wanna to get to a remote place and execute this plan. So they're in Shechem and they make the decision to go all the way to Dothan, which is farther, farther out from Shechem. So they're miles away from their home where Jacob is. They're going to a remote place to basically kill their brother. That's what they're thinking. So just to show you how God is working, Jacob, and I, I don't know where he gets this idea from. 
it, it just shows you that he's, 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 his judgment is clouded or something. But he sends Joseph out to them to get a report on how they're doing. It's kind of like, I haven't seen the boys in a long time. Would you go out there and get a report? Now, I don't know. If you're just kind of thinking about this, like this would be the worst thing you could do as a parent. This is not growing kids God's way right here, okay? This, it's, it's just not. Uh, so he sends them out and then Joseph goes. Joseph's like, sure, dad, I'll go see. So he goes to Shechem. The brothers are not there. Joseph's confused. He sees, he sees a stranger. The stranger comes up to him and says, hey, man, who are you looking for? And he's like, well, I've got 10 brothers, and they're caring for all these sheep. Have you seen them? He's like, yeah, man, I've seen them. I, I even overheard that they were going to move on to Dothan. I think that's where they're at. And Joseph's like, cool, man, thanks a lot. And he heads on to Dothan. And you know the rest of the story. They strip him. They throw him into the pit. They abandon him. They go eat lunch. I mean, what a seared conscience that is. You can do all that to him and just go eat lunch. And then they think about it and change their mind. Well, let's just sell him, make some money off of him. And they sell him into slavery, all right? Now think about that. God was working through a stranger. I mean, if that stranger's not in there, Joseph never gets to Dothan. Joseph never gets his, his robe torn. Joseph never gets thrown into the pit. Joseph never gets sold into slavery. God was working even in all of that. And you're like, well, that didn't sound very good. You know, Scott, that doesn't sound very fun. But just think about it, church. You read the story. If there's a famine coming, and if this story doesn't happen just like it happened, thousands of people are going to die from the famine. And God's plan for salvation from the famine is Joseph. And if, God, if Joseph is going to be used by God to save people from the famine, God has got to get Joseph down to Egypt. And so if this thing doesn't happen just like it, just like, um, just like it is told, then thousands of people die from a famine. And so Joseph is able to save himself. Joseph eventually is able to save his family. And guess what? Guess who comes from the line of Joseph? Jesus. So we're saved by God's grace because God threw him into a pit so many thousands of years ago. Does that really make sense to you? Do you see how God's working? And I think, I think the point here is this, that God is working in your pit even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it's confusing to us, even when we don't understand, God is working in the details. And so when God gave Joseph the dreams that his family would be bowing down to him and the stars and the moon would be bowing down to him, he, Joseph shared that out of some pride and arrogance, obviously, but God was working. But even that didn't make sense. His brothers were like, that's the stupidest thing we've ever heard of. But you read the story and you know what happens? They're bowing down to him. Do you see how God was working in that story? And do you see how God is working in your life? I guess the way to apply this is that God is working in everything in your life. In the hard things? Yes. In the evil things that are done to you? Yes. In the, in the really sinful things? Yes. He's working in all of it. Let me show you Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, notice this, all things work together for good. Now, it doesn't say some things up there, does it? It doesn't say, you know, good things work together for good. What does it say? Say it with me. 
all things. You see that? And so, and so what we see is that God is working in the chaos. He's working in the awful things, the terrible things, the evil things. It doesn't mean, church, don't go off the deep end and think, okay, God is the source and the author of evil. He's not. He's not some puppet master controlling the characters, getting them to do what he wants to do. No, what is he doing? He's using their choices. He's overruling their choices. He's arranging their choices. And then he's redeeming their choices for his purposes. That's what he does. That's what he does in your life. That's what he does in my life. You know, think about it. God took the cross, the worst news in the world, and turned it into salvation for everyone who believes. That is your God and mine. And that is really, really good news. And it's just how God works. Now, maybe you're sitting back and you're thinking, okay, Scott, I'm, I'm with you. I can see how God's orchestrating this. But did God, I mean, why couldn't God just do it an easier way? Like, why couldn't God just send an angel to Jacob? And the, and the angel just says to Jacob, Jacob, you're showing favoritism to Joseph. No, 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 don't do that, okay? You know, why didn't the angel, why didn't God just send an angel to do that? You can save a lot of heartache and pain. Why, why, didn't, why doesn't God just send an angel to the brothers and say, now I know you're struggling with some anger and hatred right now, but don't go through with it, okay? Just don't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Well, I'll tell you. I, I'll give you a couple of thoughts. Maybe they'll encourage you. I, I don't know if they will or not, but I think that the way God does it brings him great glory. I mean, I think the way he wrote this story, he just shows that he's a, he's a great storyteller. And I think what it does is this story brings God great glory. Now, church, listen to me. God is not some megalomaniac that needs people to praise him. He, he doesn't need us at all. He is God. But there's something about when you read a story like this and you see how God is working in it and how God redeems it and overrules it and arranges it and brings good out of it, then you're encouraged because you're like, if God can work in that, God is surely working in the pit that I'm in. And that brings him glory. Your faith and your trust in his goodness and you recognizing his goodness brings him great glory. The other thing that I would say about it is this. You know, I can stand up here and tell you all that God loves you. And I do. I try to do that very regularly. I can't make the knowledge of that go from your head to your heart. I mean, I can, I can explain it and exegete it and, and show you all throughout Scripture that God loves you. And you'll know it in your mind. The question is, how does that get from your mind to your heart? And most of the time, the only way that kind of reality gets from your mind to your heart is you have to experience the love of God firsthand in your own life. You've got to walk through it. And most of the time, what God does to show us that he really loves us is he allows us to go down into a pit where we realize that God is what we need. And we realize that God is all that I have. And we come back to this reality that truly God is all that I need. And when he lifts you up out of that pit, when he raises you from the dead, you're transformed because you realize truly God is all that I really need in life. And when you come to know that, your life 
is unshakable in the grace and the love of God because now that knowledge has moved from here to here. Think about what, how different your life would be if you were absolutely confident that God loves you. How would that impact the pit that you're in right now? How would that impact some of the struggles that you're going through right now that you were absolutely confident that he loved you? I think it would be a game changer. It really would. Man, you would see an exodus of insecurity and fear and doubt and worry and, and all of that stuff. And how do, we, how do we learn that? We learn it in the pit. So church, what, I, what, what I'm really trying to say is this. Just because it seems like God is hidden, he's not. He's working. He, he's, he's not absent. He's working all the way. And that is a huge, huge perspective. He said, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. Greater is he that is in you, which is the spirit of God, than he that's in the world. And so, and so he is with you. And all right, one last perspective. The news gets even better. I think when we're in the pit, we need to realize Jesus went into the pit for us. He went into the pit for us. You see, you're in a pit right now. And um, it's serious, whatever your pit is, it's serious. But it's not the biggest pit that you've ever been in. As big and as hard as the pit you're in is right now, it's not the biggest pit you're in. Do you know the biggest pit that we've all been in is the pit of being separated from God because of our sin. And you know what Jesus did in that, in that for us? He went into that pit for us. He took our place. What I love about the story of Joseph is, is it is how God turned Joseph into a savior. And he did it through Joseph's weakness and suffering. So Joseph becomes a savior of his people through weakness and suffering. Do you know that hundreds and hundreds of years later, God would send another savior? And do you know how he would do his saving? Through weakness and through suffering. Do you know when he sent that savior, he, that savior went to his brothers and the Bible tells us his brothers received him not. Do you know when that savior went to his, his brothers, his brothers sold him for 30 pieces of silver. Do you know when, when God sent that savior to his brothers, his brothers stripped him of his robe and threw him into a, a pit and abandoned him. That's, that's the Savior, Jesus Christ. And so what this means for you and for me is, is this. It's very simple. There's grace for you and for me in the pit. There's grace. God loves you. God is with you. God, God forgives you. God is in you. God is for you. God is, God is with you every step of the way. And that's called grace. And the way that we know that God loves us is the cross of Christ. And that is really your coat. It's your dream coat, right? The coat for Joseph was the sign of his father's love for him. You know what our sign is? Right there. That's how you know he's got this. He is for you. He's not against you. He's with you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, 
we confess that we often struggle in the pits. Whether we're battling just health concerns or a strained relationship or financial worries or job concerns. God, we, we often struggle in the pit, but I thank you. You love us. You went into the pit for us. And you bridged the gap that our sin caused. And we thank you for that. And we thank you that your word promises that all things work together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose so that we might be conformed to the image of your son. So God, we just give you permission to let you do that work in us. For let you, we, we let you want to change us, to work in us, to accomplish your purposes in us. And so we thank you. Lord, we don't, we don't really need reasons for why we're in the pit. We just, we just need a person. We just need Jesus. So God, thank you that our lives are in your hands. And we thank you and praise you. And all of God's people said, amen.